Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Firehall Art Center in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer of the Firehall Art Center and the host for today's podcast. And I am delighted to have as my guest today, Sherry Miracle. Sherry is currently performing in her production of Paddle Song, a powerful work based on the life of E. Pauling Johnson here at the Fire Hall until November 21st. Sherry has had a long connection to us, going back to her first performance in Marie Clements' Age of Iron, and I believe her character in that show was called Mother Earth. Sherry, welcome, and please bring yourself into our podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Donna. Um, yes, it was Mother Earth that I played, and I haven't had that role since. So. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, that was just, you know... An excellent time. Um, yeah, I'm very happy to, to sit and chat with you. Uh, as you said, I'm Sherry Miracle. I'm from uh, Six Nations, Ontario, although I grew up all over Canada as a critter and um, got off the roller coaster that my parents provided uh, at 17 and uh, went to study at what is now the Capilano University and uh, followed that up with Spirit Song Native Indian Theatre School, which um, was an amazing grounding for me as an Indigenous actress. Um, I met friends there that I still have and it provided a sort of a solid foundation, if you will, for um, for me sort of jumping off uh, the cliff and into the sea of what we call the industry. And I remember in Mother Earth, that was the first time I met you, not Mother Earth, Age of Iron, when you were Mother Earth, first yes. time I met you, yeah. you actually emerged from uh, this amazing design it was sort of like this big uh I don't know heap I'm going to say a heap of materials but you actually came out of it and and uh into the into the world of the performing arts I but... <laughs> how metaphorical <laughs> yeah it was um I was emerging from the earth and the idea was that I was under huge slabs of broken concrete and, uh, oh my God, it was hot and sweaty under there. I was also covered uh, by canvas, which was connected to the little wooden pod island thing that I was buried under. And then the mask that I had made for Mother Earth um, was attached to the canvas. So when I emerged, it was like I was bursting from the ground, but I also um, was bursting from this little pod and sort of knocking off chunks of concrete um, as, as Mother Earth does. I mean, there's no stopping her, right? She'll do whatever she wants. So that was the idea. And um, I wish I had hung on to that mask. It was one of my first mask making attempts and uh, it was quite grand. And uh, I've grown to love working with masks. I do a fair amount with uh, Odyssey Theatre out of Ottawa. And um, I come alive with mask. I absolutely love it. So, well, and it's kind of interesting that piece was sort of based on the Trojan Wars. But when you were speaking about Mother Earth having such power, here we are right now with Mother Earth actually showing her power mm -hmm. uh, and and reminding us that really we do have a duty, I think, to take better care of Mother Earth, or 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 she will have to show us that we need to. And that's what's going on, I think, in some ways. Oh, kind good Lord, yes. And it's such a wake-up call for so many people to get involved with, you know, taking better care of her and, um, you know, appointing leaders in our country that will do these things and not just make the false promises about doing it. I mean, people have died from these mudslides that are happening, and it's, it's completely tragic and sad and 
I just blame all of us for not doing better um, with taking care of Mother Earth. Yeah. I think we have a tendency to forget that uh, we are a part of we are a part of this land. We are we are not above it. We don't ro- rule it. We are part of it and need to be play not play and take care of our uh, connection to our relations with yeah. the earth. But I mean, just even with with tiny, like I, I do try in my own way with tiny things. But it's a wake up call for me to get more involved and stand for my words and. Um, you know, I've actually gotten into scraps with strangers over me, asking them not to run the water in the washrooms, in public washrooms. This girl was doing her hair and letting the water run. And I ran over and said, don't waste water. And she got right angry with me. But I, I was like, do you like, I'll just do it. You know, was, do you have kids? Do you want them to have clean drinking water? Settle up, settle down, you know, and I, I don't run water excessively. I lived on reserve when I was growing up, often on reserve. And uh, we had to haul water and and, you know, living in the city, you really realize that even just letting the water run when you're doing your dishes or letting the water run when you're cooking, it's it's all part and parcel. I mean, a friend of mine was like, why do you wash your baggies? <laughs> because I'm trying to help. <laughs> oh, because I, I otherwise you would. baggies over and over. I'm doing the keto thing, as you know, and I have nuts in my baggies every day as my snack and I save them and I take them home and I wash them. And yeah. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, when all the water is coming down around us, it's really hard for us to sort of understand that uh, we have a responsibility to turn off the tap and, mm-hmm. and to be reminded. I mean, all over the country, there are uh, in, Indigenous nations that do have to boil their water all the time. And now we have a reminder here that in places like Abbotsford, where the, the pumps are, are, are overwhelmed and merit where they have not been able they they can't people can't drink their water it's a reminder that there are people all over canada who cannot drink their water oh yeah our northern reserves are living in third world country conditions i was thinking about this just the other day actually how some of our uh our first nations people or indigenous people in the northern reserves get uh, sores on their bodies like it's just freaking heartbreaking that these children get sores on their bodies from washing in that water come on Trudeau wake up buddy and is you know the people before him as well like it is just tragic and sad but yeah like on most reserves across Canada you cannot drink the water I know on six nations you still can't drink the water from the tap you know we can bathe in it but you can't uh, you can't drink it and it's just it's 2021 it's pathetic and without water we there, we can't, there's no life you, you, without water. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, I do take it seriously. I should be more involved and uh, being, being out here and being close to really close to uh, what's going on in Merritt and the flooding and the mudslides and all the stuff is a wake up call for me to, to take more action as uh, as an indigenous woman. Mohawk women are, are keepers of the water, you know, so I got to get in there. Do you want to talk a bit about what that act that means? Cause not everybody will understand that. When you say, uh, well, I mean, it's it's sort of uh, w- how I understand it, and I'm sure everyone understands it differently. Um, you know, we we walk, we'll do the walks for clean water. We'll accost strangers in bathrooms and tell them not to waste water. Um, it's about honoring water. I actually wrote a song about it. Uh, if I am water, and just all that water is uh, cause for power. How powerful water is. And uh, how it's, I mean, we're, what, 89% water or something. Um, it's in us, it's around us, and we have to protect it, and we have to uh, honor it. It's more powerful than we are. And, um, 
make it part of our, our daily routine to honor the water, protect the water. Now, moving on uh, and just kind of segueing into um, the project that you're working on now, um, the E. Pauline Johnson Paddle Song Project and, and Pauline Johnson's uh, advocacy through her work that a lot of people didn't recognize was there. Do you, do you want to talk about how you got connected to that and how more and more as you do the show, you connect even more and more to Pauline Johnson? Oh, yeah. Well, um, the show started uh, way long ago when I was a puppy. <laughs> back in 2009 as a first rendition and uh, it's since gone through so many workshops and overhauls and comb throughs and additions and subtractions and um, it's thanks to the Canada Council and the Ontario Arts Council and a handful of amazing artists that I completely respect. Uh, it is the show that it is today and today's show is very very different from um, day one ages ago, uh, particularly and especially with the direction of Kalumpa Bob. Um, she is just such a dear friend and sister, and she's also a brilliant director. Hire her, Canada, United States, everywhere, hire her. She's um, otherworldly brilliant to me. She showed me nine different ways to do the poems. She showed me nine different ways to attack the script. And uh, it just grows deeper and deeper. And I'm lucky that I, I get to live with the show for a decade. I'm lucky that I get to go back to it um, every couple of years. I actually was going to hang my hat up with it, but now I'm rejuvenated and I want to rejoice and do it all over the place. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm approaching, you know, the age that Pauline Johnson was when she passed away. She was 52 and I'm turning 50 in a week. So um, everything's sort of, you know, in its own time and for a reason and all those good things. But uh, I, I get more brave when I'm doing Pauline's show. I get grounded when I'm doing Pauline's show. I, I have my ears to the ground. I have my ears more open, my eyes more aware when I'm doing the show. And um, it takes a lot of energy. It's a big journey. It's someone's life. Uh, but I take it very seriously and um, it, it's an honor to do the show. Uh, one thing that I've learned in this particular round, this remount, um, is is the amount of foresight. I mean, it was there before within my, my psyche, but the amount of foresight that she had for uh, standing up and, and just facing people through art and through words, representing us on stage and what a platform and way back when too, like the guts, I keep saying the ovaries this woman had. You know, um, she just was an incredible pioneer. So this was the late 1800s. This yeah. is an amazing feat that she did, that she traveled and did poetry. And she... Incredible. Just, just incredible. I mean, you know, here we are in these days, you hop on a plane and you go to your place. She did uh, train travel, boat travel. You know, she took a steamship to England to meet with um, uh, one of the critics way back when to, uh, or sorry, not to meet with the critic, but to, to perform and then to uh, get published in England. So just just an incredible, brave, uh, stick to your guns, you know, incredible artist that I completely admire. And it's just an honor to do the show every night. Well, and I think what she also did, I mean, at, at, at some point, someone said to her, because she was performing when she first started to perform, she was performing in uh, standard uh, dress of the day uh, yeah. and then at some point she was encouraged or, or told that she should be performing and wearing uh, indigenous costumes yeah, and I'm saying yeah. costumes because it wasn't actually she didn't necessarily she she blended 
what she wore to represent <laughs> Indigenous people. Right. And um, I mean, it's so it's interesting to look at that so many different ways. I would have loved to be in the fly on the wall in the room when they had that discussion, you know, or or how many discussions were had before she ordered her buckskin dress from the Hudson Bay catalog. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that is what she did. I think it's fantastic. And in the show, well, I don't want to give it away. Come see the show and you'll see. But um, it's wild that she did half of her show in English dress and half of her show in native dress. It's also a mark of the theatrics of the time. I mean, she, she used her theatrics and she used her intonation of words uh, to really feed into the stereotypical romanticism of the day, uh, which still exists. And, and then turn around and give you a quick slap and uh, say how we really feel about politics in Canada and how Indigenous people are treated, how we are treated in Canada by the general populace and, and by the uh, the government. So she just, uh, she had it all together. I mean, it was a um, little uh, trickster self in her, I think, you know, to... Uh, to just deliver this material in in such with such ferocity and in this amazing conglomerate of clothing that she had collected, <laughs> I mean she had a, a Blackfoot scalp from a Sioux chief attached to her belt that she wore on the dress. She had these brooches and these ermine tails that were actually um, considered uh, currency way back when. And it was Columba Bob that told me that, that the ermine tails or ermine skins, not ermine skins, but ermine tails were considered currency way back when. So just, it's just a wild concept. I mean, it was, it was uh, probably worth money, this, this gown. And um, my cousin, Naomi Martin, actually um, did a replica for this remount of the dress. And it's quite close to what it was actually. Mine's a bit bigger. She was five, six at 120 pounds. Well, I don't think that affects the performance at all. <laughs> I mean, you're a bigger, taller woman. So I am. Um, I'm your, I'm your Mohawk medium right here. All five eight of me. Yeah. No, there's a tremendous. You, you just pointed on, uh, pointed to it a bit. There's a tremendous romanticism about um, indigenous culture, certainly in around Pauline Johnson. But I think there is still um, that. Uh, perception or something going on do you have anything you want to say about that well I mean it's interesting and fascinating um the Germans love us I uh, was over there uh, over a decade ago and um I had the honor of backup singing for Jerry Alfred in the medicine beat and we toured through Germany and oh my goodness there was some I'll never forget this these German women that would just stare at me uh, in my Indian uh, I say Indian because I'm using the words from the show in my indigenous um, outfit and uh, they would just stare at me and go wunderbar wunderbar <laughs> but um, I mean I think they read a lot of Karl May books um, and in, in today you know uh, today's society there is an intrigue an awe um, a curiosity about First Nations folks if um, if you don't know us um that you know and we do have connection to the land clearly obviously we do and um i think that gives us um a grounding and uh for lack of a better word a grounding and um how do you describe it sort of a piece that we carry um a knowledge in our bones and um i love that i love that power i absolutely do um 
It's also in our industry. I mean, and now things, I remember being um, a graduate of Spirit Song and saying, you know, I can't wait for a time when things are nation specific, when roles in TV and film are nation specific. And it's happening and it's so exciting. I remember being in Blackfly, casting Blackfly as Misty Moon, the bartender. And I love Ron James for doing that. I was, you know, the indigenous bartender who didn't drink but owned a bar. <laughs> right on. But uh, so she was dressed in, you know, uh, chokers and feathers and leathers. And um, Mi'kmaq people, Mi'kmaq women didn't wear that. You know what I mean? So it's like things have really grown all across the board in so many ways. Um, and And we're demanding it. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work. But now, you know, I, I'm auditioning for things where, you know, she's a Mohawk character. I'm like, oh, okay, I love this so much. We're not all the same, you know, nations across Canada. We're very, very, very different from each other. You know, West Coast is very different from Mohawk. Mohawk is very different from Cree. Cree is very different from Haida, you know? Well, it's interesting because when I first started in the business, I started as an actress, not knowing full well that I wanted to direct. But I remember being told by... Uh, someone, and I'm not going to reveal the name, that I should, uh, I should go out for Indigenous roles, Native roles, as it was called at that time, because I had cheekbones. And I went, I can't do that. That's not who I am. Why would I do that? Yeah. But you'll get more work. And I went, I don't care. I don't want to, I don't believe yeah. I can represent myself as something other than what I am. Yeah. And, and you know, that you kind of thing that, was going on. Yeah. You have to stand that ground. I've, I've had, um, when I was studying film a little while ago in Toronto, I say a little while ago, it was like eight years ago, uh, one of the teachers said, oh, and you should be going out for all the Latina parts. You should get your accent down. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I am Mohawk and I would not want to step on their toes, infringe upon an, an actress's bread and butter, so to speak. You know, I no, I am a Mohawk woman and that's who I want to represent and that's who I easily represent. Um, you know, and then way back when casting directors, oh, you're so contemporary looking, that would come through my agent, you know, but now it's like people are finally opening their eyes and going, wow, they don't all look like, like Pocahontas. Ding, you get a star. No, we don't. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, I'm a light skinned Mohawk chick, so be it. I've got lots to say and I've, you know, accrued a certain amount on my resume and uh, I'm going to keep going. I'm heading into writing now, so... I was just going to say that you've, you're a, a very established uh, singer, mm -hmm. film and television uh, stage. How did you get, and now writing, how, how did you, uh, what was your first encounter with the arts? How did you know that you were going to, when did you oh, know wow. you were going to have to uh, pursue this dream? Do this? <laughs> um, well, uh, I was living on Six Nations. I was in grade seven and I'd always been a dramatic kid. Um, actually, it's a funny little story. When I was in grade three, somehow in my imagination, my family were actually actors. So I would sometimes try to creep around the door and burst into the room and like, ah, catch them off guard and off script. <laughs> I, don't know. I know, I know. Yeah. Watch you hope they were actors. Watch too many movies or something. I don't know. Like for a chunk of time there in grade three, I was convinced that my family were actors and it was a script and I, I was going to catch them off guard at some point. This little kid, you know, but um, I do remember being in grade four in Valley View, Alberta and Mrs. Posniak saying, who wants to read? We're going to read this story out loud. Who wants to be the da 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 character? And I was like, oh, 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 you know, arm up, jumping out of my chair. And she's like, uh, Sherry, okay, you can do that role. But I was always very 
a dramatic little kid. I liked acting out things. I liked... So that said, uh, I was in grade seven and I was watching Rosa John and I don't think it was her partner Melvin at the time, but they uh, another uh, dance partner. They were back to back doing um, a movement piece on the Sky Woman Falls from the Sky creation story. That is our Haudenosaunee creation story. And I just... I was so awestruck. I was, it was like a thunderbolt hit me and I just pointed. I'm like, I have to do that. And I went up to her afterwards, Rosa John, and I was almost shaking, just vibrating from what I had seen, the connection and knowing that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I was 11 and I said, I uh, can, um, is there a, and she said, okay, yeah, calm down little one. We have a children's theater uh, program that you can audition for. So I dragged my cousin, Naomi, um, the same one that made the costumes for this show. I dragged her with me and uh, we auditioned for this children's theater and it, I just knew I loved it. I loved it. I loved escaping. And, um, you know, like many, many uh, Indigenous friends and colleagues, I, I had a really rough childhood. It was uh, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drinking. My Both of my parents went to the mush, or uh, grandparents went to the mush hole, Joby Miracle and Mina Martin. And uh, so I'm, you know, second generation survivor of residential school survivors. And I survived my father <laughs> and uh, he was quite the cat. I mean, he was a very, very um, talented Mohawk artist, but the other half, it was almost Jekyll and Hyde. And uh, I think escaping through acting was, was my thing. And I think it really saved me from going down a path that would have had me possibly incarcerated. You know, I just, I, I'm so grateful and thankful that I found acting when I did. Um, yeah, I just, I grew up around a lot of violence and uh, it was, uh, it was uh, an escape. I loved it. Was there always music there? Was there music in your family or? Yes, my dad also, uh, like he was a talented dude. He sculpted, he painted, he, he did crazy shit too. I'll tell you about that in a sec. But yeah, he, um, he played guitar and sang. And so that was a usual thing, you know, uh, two or three days a week, my sister and I would have this book and be standing behind him doing harmonies while he played the guitar. It was quite cute. And um, so, yeah, music was always there. My sister and I would sing uh, and Sheila would take a, a higher harmony and I would do the lower one. And we still do that. Um, music sort of happened. I was drawn to jazz at a young age, like 19, 20, 21. I just loved the, or even younger, actually, Billie Holiday and mm. and all that, because it's so dramatic. I just picture, you know, the smoky bar and the, the bright red dress and the bright red lips and telling this story and, and the stand-up bass and the piano. I just love that image. And I love that sound. So um, I actually met Mark Najuan in Toronto when I was 26 at a karaoke bar. And um, I was new to Toronto and he said, you are a good singer. Do you write? And I said, actually, I've written a couple of songs. I think to that, to, at that point, I'd written maybe six to eight songs. And it was way back when I brought him a cassette tape with uh, the songs that I had written and recorded. Oh, my God, I feel ancient. But um, yeah, he was like, oh, uh, tape. Great. <laughs> so, yeah, he was sort of my mentor for a while. Um, he gave me deadlines. I work well with deadlines. I wrote an album and uh, we recorded it and I traveled all over Canada at 28 or 30 or whatever it was. And 
sang with my band and just absolutely loved it. And, um, you know, as an artist, you have to branch out. You, you can't always, an artist in Canada, you can't always just act. So I did move to music. And then when music got slow, I moved back to acting. Acting got slow, I moved back to music. And yeah, it was uh, always intertwined. And the stories and the songs are, are all intertwined with, with who I am and how I grew up and being, you know, mixed blood and being Indigenous and all that stuff too. So it's, it's just been... Um, it's been quite a, a ride, quite a journey with uh, stretching myself as an artist and, and going into different avenues. Well, and then COVID hit and uh, uh, live performance shut down and everything sort of closed in, I think. How did that affect you as an artist? I have been chasing. I saw Stephanie Mathias's post the other day, chasing film and television, banging on the glass ceiling. I really related to that. Um I had been chasing this film and TV for, for so long and, and getting it sometimes and doing theater and getting more film and TV and doing theater. And anyway, I was lucky enough. Uh, I found myself, thank you, Jennifer Podemski and Derek DiOrio. I found myself as the lead actress in a series called Unsettled. And I had to learn Ojibwe and for the role. She was, uh, the character was named Raina and she was a 60s scoop. Uh, characters. So I did some research, I actually interviewed a couple of people who were products of the 60s scoop and away I went and um, did my best. And it was a lot of hard work. You know, it was like 12 hours a day, um, getting up at five, a little soldier, I would get up at five, hit the gym and then do 12 hours a day. And anyway, so we did that for a month. And then, you know, there were these rumors of, oh, my God, this uh, this virus thing. And then it got worse and worse. And then suddenly, boom, we were shut down. Production was shut down. Everyone was sent home. So I went from, you know, output, 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 24-7 of just work, 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 to sitting alone in my living room with my two cats going, what the hell is going on? I got very depressed. And then... Um, Pizza Pizza was my my uh, my go-to. <laughs> Netflix. I watched everything on Netflix. Uh, yeah, it was a depressing time. I It was scary. I had a lot of pressure from my family to stay in and isolate, but um, isolating alone was not good for me. Um, I just, yeah, I got depressed for the first time in I don't know how many years, 15 years. Anyway. So uh, what does it feel like now? What, I mean, I, we can go go to that place of real bleakness, which I think happened to a lot of artists and really happened to a lot of individuals not just artists but people that were told to stay in that were gregarious and used to working with people Mm -hmm. so when you stepped on the stage with paddle song was that the first theater production you have done oh good lord yes um I had been asked to uh perform with my jazz band at Ontario Place uh, about two weeks before I came out and it was the first time I had been on stage in well over a year and a half, probably two and a half years with my band. And we were grinning like idiots. <laughs> there was an audience. I just wanted to pinch them. Are you real? And they were grinning like idiots. Like it was just awesome. The vibe, the reciprocal vibe of being on stage, being an being an actor, singer, doing my thing after being in my living room, you know, it was pretty wild. And, um, and after that, I did a couple of readings for, uh, of Paddle Song for the Woodland Cultural Center and then for Trent University as well before I came out. And I'm really glad that I had those, um, 
I'm really glad that I had those opportunities because it, I was easing back into it. You know, I was, I was doing reading. So I was on a stool and then there was people and then, yeah, getting up, uh, doing rehearsal, but actually opening night or the preview, you know, there's actually people. It was quite wild and I was terrified, but I also trusted the work and trusted the work we had done and trusted that I've done this a million times, you know, and, and just stepped out, put on my brave face, pulled up my big girl panties and went out. Yeah. Well, and it's electric. I think it's been a really good reminder for those of us who work in this business, how important live performance is, because I think mm -hmm. during this whole period of time, a lot we've been doing streaming, recording and streaming and film, of course, is coming. It's come back, of course. Yeah. But um, I don't think I really recognized how important that connection between audience and artists is and how unique it is. And I don't think audiences actually really, uh, well, maybe I could be wrong, but I, I can't, when I've been in the room with, with audiences watching a live performance, the energy, the commitment, the, the connection, because each performance is different because each mm -hmm. audience is different and each night is different. Uh, you, you know, you feel different when you go out on stage. Mm -hmm. It's very electric. And I, 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 I hope that as we move forward, that we're not going to lose the ability to keep connecting while being responsible about taking care of mother earth, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we have to figure out a way that we can continue to connect safely yeah. in this new age that we're in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But oh, no. well, it's, I mean, one step that we are doing at the fire hall is everyone's in masks. And that's, that's really, uh, I mean, I've had two years of trying to read people's faces through their eyes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And stepping out on stage is like, Oh, right. They're all in masks. But they're still with you 100%. And it's it's a quiet giving of the audience because they cannot express. Well, they're expressing under their masks, but I don't get to see it. You know, um, as for um, taking care of Mother Earth and moving forward, um, I'm not sure how to navigate that and intertwine it with what we do. Well, I think it's a bit about taking responsibility for what we use in our materials on stage. And, and also when we tour, how are we, if we are touring, how do we tour? Do we tour the whole company or do we tour part of the company and go into right. the, the location and bring us on, go in for longer, but bring on people who, who are local, who can help us connect to community. I think there's different ways of doing this and, 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 you know, people obviously need to consider how they get to and from the theater, but that, that companionship or that um, feeling of community that you have when you come into the theater is something that we all have, have, have lost. We couldn't see people. We couldn't talk to people. And, and uh, uh, that's who we are. I mean, we're communal people. I know. I know. Um, I mean, it's just, it's been amazing to step on stage again and have, and have, like I said, the reciprocity of an audience and, uh, it feeds your soul on a level that is undescribable. I mean, it's what we do, you know, as storytellers, as actors, um, and hopefully, and, and I know this show does teach, it really teaches a lot about uh, Indigenous women and, yes, the R word, resilience. Um, I love that, the, the immediacy of theatre. I absolutely love it. I feel full. I feel happy at the end of the show. And that is something that I don't think that will ever die. I don't think live performance will ever die. And, yes, we do need to curb how we do it, like you're saying, touring and all that sort of thing. But, um it is just one of the most fulfilling things in my life. Theater is my first passion. Although I love film and TV, I love singing. 
theater has always been it for me. Well, you've done quite a few shows here at the fire hall and uh, you're talking about writing. I'm just curious about, um, well, and you've done quite a few theater shows across the country. So I'm curious if you have favorites, any favorite show that you went, Oh, this show I have to do again, or this show is a really important show. We need to see it again. Uh, And how your writing will, how will your writing be affected by what you've learned over the years? Um, Favorite shows. Oh man, I'd have to, honestly, nothing's like jumping out as favorite, favorite. I love doing Paddle Song, which I'm doing now. Um, Each show has been so eclectic and different from one another. I did love doing um, a show that I had to learn Lenape for. Um, I can't think of the title right now, uh, by Jeff DeHaunt in, um, in Toronto. Um, shows that I need to learn language for are right up there for me. I really enjoy that. It's, it's, it's another piece of magic layered into the work because indigenous languages have their own philosophy and tapping into that as well as doing theater is, is something else. It's transporting, transportative or whatever the word is. Um, I loved doing the Sunraiser in Banff by Yves Siwi Durand. Um, it was a, I think it's, it's because of the in, enormity of the show. I was playing a spirit that came out of the ground and, and again, I keep coming out of the ground, but <laughs> this was this, um, this spirit that was supposed to be, you know, hundreds of years old had survived all the Indian wars and I had huge medicine wheels in my hair. These things were like, two feet by two feet. They were very light, um, but they were attached to this wig that I wore and I was painted blue and I had very diaphanous clothing on and I did a ballet out of the ground. And that show was just magical to me, these bigger than life characters and really taught you about Mother Earth and how to take care of of her as we can. Um, Yeah, I can't... Well, this right, will that was those kind of stories. Will, do you see yourself as you start writing? Do you see yourself writing for theater, or or do you see yourself writing and seeing what happens to both, the work? Both. Uh, I have a, a theater piece that I'm writing, and it's about um, two gals, two young girls uh, who are at residential school, and they still, as young young women do, have so many hopes and dreams about their future. Um, and then there's another project that I'm going to be co-writing with a dear friend of mine from Vancouver. And it is about, uh, what happens when indigenous women call the police and they don't come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So both are about who we are. And, and do you think you'll be, uh, create, well, who knows what'll happen? I was just going to, I was going to ask you, do you, how do you think, will it be the standard playwriting mode? I mean, I, I, I feel like, uh, we're at this place in time where, those traditional Euro-based uh, styles of writing plays are being exploded. Um, and I hope that's the case. Um, but that means that a lot of people won't necessarily understand uh, why, because we've gotten used to this certain format for plays. But um, I'm curious about whether you'll play around with a style. Definitely. Um, one of my fave things has always been movement theater as well. And I see that a lot. Um, for the piece that I'm writing about the two gals at residential school. Um, I like movement theater. I find it very uh, immediate and the message gets through quicker than words for me. Um, And I would like to play with the idea of um, people being right close, almost like a walking 
through the story and being affected by, I don't know, it's all still budding, but <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to involve a, a lot of different mediums with, with that. Um, as far as writing itself, I've got this beautiful little raw edge, simple desk that I'm going to be writing from, uh, have started writing from, uh, where I'm living in Ontario and, um, it's just simplistic. It's, you know, I've got my dad's art all around me and I've got this really cool raw edge desk that barely supports my laptop. Um, for the uh, other piece that I'm writing with a friend of mine, um, we're hoping to get a Banff residency. Um, we, we are still in the beginnings of that, but, uh, I think, um, for the co-writing, I think we really need to be in the same room. We've, we've dabbled with the idea of doing zoom and that sort of thing, but I think we need to be in the same room. I did writing before with, uh, the turtle gals and whew, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done creatively. Um, I mean, writing is just so personal and then to have someone, you know, take a red mark or two is like, ah, oh, it's gutting. But you come out with a product that is shiny. It's necessary. All the rewrites are necessary and painful. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of move us toward, uh, towards wrapping this up, but I do have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is, this is called Dramatic Pause and it was started during uh, COVID. Uh, and uh, there was a reason we, why we called it dramatic pause. Yeah. So I'm curious what a dramatic pause would be in terms of your definition of it. What would a dramatic pause be? Oh, that's like the prep time. That's like the preparation time. I actually used it a bit last night in the show. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're still playing when you're out there, even though it's a show that you've done many, many times. You're still playing and trying new things every night. And um in, in some of the poems, I, I used it, and it really felt good. It really worked. I mean, I'm a speedy person. Uh, I talk fast, and I move fast, and I do things quickly <laughs> to get to the end. It's all about product. But, um, <laughs> Where does that come uh, from? Where does that my drive dad. come from? Your dad, dad, okay. Yeah, yeah, Mohawk militant. Um, yeah, it's like get to the end and show me something really fucking good. Oops, sorry, F word. Um, but dramatic pause is also scary for me. It's sitting in the unknown. It's sitting in the, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this possibility. And, uh, I like, I don't like gray area. <laughs> I don't like a lot of gray area. So, um, dramatic pause is that, but you know what? It's something that I need to incorporate and learn in my artistic practice because reflection is so important and rest is so important and patting yourself on the back for a job well done is so important. So that I will try like and use that in my life now, Donna. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. Just think about it. It's called a pause for a reason, but it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> I know, I, I know sometimes people pause just for effect yeah. And nothing's going on in the pause and you can watch that happening on stage and you go, okay, why are you, what, Get on with it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the pauses quite often are the, the places that the story gets told. Well, it's also a time that you pause when people have their cell phones on. That's true. <laughs> Please turn off your cell phone. I have another question that I always ask people and uh, it's kind of corny, but if uh, you had all the funds in that you needed, what would you do? If you had many, many bucks, what would you do with them? I would build a theater on Six Nations. I would uh, employ the finest practitioners and um, create stories for youth, create stories, create stories, create stories. Um, I would also try and live half of my time in Hawaii or something like Buffy St. Maritas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Yes. What a that there there you go. There's another amazing warrior woman. Uh, sure. uh, she's uh, hands up to her. Up a lot much of respect to her. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's been doing up a lot of things forever, and she rolls with the punches, man. Oh my God, what what an innovative artist! Just incredible. So, do you have some words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us? On, I mean, this has been a we've been through a a journey. Recently. Drink free trade coffee. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. Um, for for younger folks who are just starting out, just really stick to your guns. I mean. Stay away from negative people. Stay away from um, toxic people. Um, practice your medicines. I don't know where I would be today without our medicines and ceremony. Not that it's a huge part of my life, but more and more as I get older, it is. And um, I didn't grow up traditionally. I grew up with a crazy Mohawk artist that dragged us all over Canada. Um, yeah, I mean, when you can, we just lost our beautiful, beautiful warrior elder, Lee Miracle. And I was speaking with uh, a friend of mine, Andrew Menard, last night who came to the show. And we just uh, are lamenting on lost opportunities of sitting with elders and lost opportunities of, of listening to them because that that stuff is golden. You know, I, I briefly lived with uh, Tantu Cardinal um, and in the morning, you know, she'd be up at six and I'd be up at my <clears throat> 10 and uh, she would tell me stories in the morning and I didn't always have patience for it. But what I realized is that she was tuning me up every day. She'd see me, you know, and, you know, she's got a couple years on me. She'd see me and she'd tell me a story. And when I left from that story, I felt centered and grounded. And I'm so thankful for that and grateful for that. And um yeah, just don't let people say no to you. Just keep dreaming. I know it's hard, man. I know it's hard to keep going sometimes. Trust me, I know. But just keep keep your eye on the prize and those stupid phrases and just keep going for what your spirit wants you to be doing. Dramatic Pause launched in the third month of the COVID-19 pandemic after the closure of live performing arts centers and theaters across Canada and around the world. The shutdown of the arts has affected artistic businesses and the artistic economy greatly, but also has had a huge impact on the emotional health of audience members and lovers of live performance. The impacts of small to larger communities will be felt for some time, but we are now back and we're operating with audiences, providing proof of vaccinations and wearing masks at our performances. At the fire hall, we will continue to work to keep our audiences, the artists we work with and our staff and volunteers safe. Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council in the City of Vancouver, and Firehall's many individual donors and supporters. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Sherry, for being with us. And if you are interested in hearing more from the Firehall, please check out our website at www.firehallartcenter.ca. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Arts Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees, or its supporting bodies. Mm-hmm.